I don't really blame large corporations necessarily for having the work environment they do. And like in a lot of ways, I contributed to it. Right when I was there, I was a really bad employee. Yeah. Right, like I created exactly that which I hate just because I felt like there's no other option. But like there probably were other options. I was just too lazy to do them. So I don't think of myself as necessarily a great actor, or that like I don't think of corporations as necessarily like evil. Just I personally often don't fit that well into large groups. What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today. The voice you just heard belongs to Vincent Wu. Vincent is the founder of a remarkable company called CoderPad. He came on NDHackers.com a few weeks ago to share his story, and it absolutely blew up. Now, in part, that's because CoderPad is a small company that's doing something like $2 million in revenue per year. But it's also in part because Vincent has a very interesting personality. So I hope you guys have as much fun listening to this episode as we did recording it. Okay, well, why don't we start off by, because I think it's an interesting story and I want to go into exactly what made you a bad employee and what that looked like. But why don't we start off with you introducing yourself uh, and telling us a little bit about what CoderPad is and where it is today. Uh, my name is Vincent Wu. I'm 28 years old from the Bay Area. I went to college at Berkeley for computer science. I worked at a string of companies like Let's see, in order, Zynga, Amazon, Google, Everlane, and then I started CoderPad. So I went around the tech block and kind of didn't really find my place in it. CoderPad is itself a tool for interviewing programmers in a more like what I think of as humane manner. So it allows you to synchronize on um, basically a, a text editor with a candidate over the internet, wherever they are through a web browser. And also like online evaluate the results of whatever code they've written live in real time, which I think is super powerful and important for for doing like a real interview and not just like a whiteboarding thing. And what would you say like the measure of CoderPad success is? Like how much revenue are you generating? How many employees do you have? Dollars probably, yeah. Okay. What are you you at right now? Uh, We make annually a bit over $2 million recurring. And there's four, four of you total. Yeah. Or like four and a half. I mean, it depends on how you count them exactly. But like okay. four people in the office on a given day, max. Okay, that's pretty cool. It's a very high revenue to employee ratio. Is it? I think so. I mean, uh, does it beat Google? Uh, I think Google's like over a million. It might be. Yeah, that's. But for most like small businesses started by one or two people, it's it's much much. Well, less. Google was once a small business started by one or two people. Do you think Google could have grown to? Anything like even a fraction of what it is now, if they just decided that they wanted to stay indie, do you think they just would have been they, killed they by did, someone? I mean, I mean, in what sense did they not stay indie? I would say, like it seemed like Google mostly controlled the destiny of its own fundraising. I don't think they were ever hard up for it. Like no, they turned down like billion dollar acquisition offers or whatever. So I mean, like I don't think the. I mean, this is a lot of what this podcast is about, as far as I can tell, about the differences between like bootstrapping and startuping via mm-hmm. venture capital. But I don't think the line is so. Cut and dry. Oh, I it's think blurry. There's very blurry. There's like blurry. private equity deals you can do. I mean, like even even in venture funding, like to say you raise like a thirty million dollars Series B can have enormously different outcomes for the founders based on liquidity preference, based on like overall valuation, based on hidden clauses that basically only the board members know about. So like, there's a huge huge range of like how much independence companies are able to retain through fundraising. And my suspicion is Google actually. I mean, if you look at it today, it seems to be acting with like relative impunity to its board's yeah. desires. So, in a lot of senses, I would say that Google essentially remained indie. Like they were always in control. 
it they could always yeah, sign whatever it, they wanted. I don't think there was like a dark night of the soul the way there was with like Steve Jobs' absence from Apple and subsequent mm-hmm. return of Savior and Messiah, et cetera. So while we're talking about big companies, you talked about working at, at Google, you talked about working at Zynga. At what point during this process did you realize that <laughs> you hated working for big companies? Uh, before I even started working. I mean, Why'd you start? Oh, I didn't really see another option at the time. Like, it was just what you did. Like, I needed to eat and... I was out of college, so you had to do something. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of ideas about like projects I wanted to do, but none of them like seemed like they could ever make money because they couldn't. I mean, what I was doing for fun back then was doing stuff like writing cheats for video games, and mm-hmm. I made a little bit of money off that, but like not <laughs> enough to eat off of. So I was like, well, I'm good at this programming thing. I might as well just work a job at it. And to be honest, okay, when I interned at Zynga for the first time, I did kind of fall in love with the idea that like, these idiots would hire me out of Berkeley, pay me some absurd salary for an intern. I think at the time it was like $5,000 a month, which to me was like an insane amount of money to pay to a child. And they put me essentially with another intern in charge of the development of like a new Pokemon-like clone that we just like worked on on our own for like a couple months and like it went nowhere. But like we hired artists, we like had all these plans, but we ended up just playing a lot of Pokemon in the office. Like they had cereal on tap, like all this weird shit that like I didn't. So the idea of Silicon Valley being in like this sort of like bubble nerd paradise, it was foreign to me at the time. Like I didn't really know about that. I just wanted a job out of college and this was like 2008 or something, right? So like people are, were obsessed with the real estate thing, you know? So Yeah, and why did you not like that job? Because that's like, what you described would be a lot of people's dream job. I you're liked playing it. Poker I, I liked it, but I also sort of knew it was a sham, you know? And I, I like got up in the morning, like uh, walked 10 minutes to work, ate a bunch of free cereal, and then like, you know, maybe in the late afternoon, like kind of sit down and like maybe try to get a little bit done. Like that felt, I was both pleased and kind of disgusted at it, right? Like, well, it's weird that that, what you just described, is a productive day for most people. Like for you, that sounds like, ugh, that's nothing at all. But like for a lot of people, that's a good day's work. You know, you start at 12, you finish at like 2. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't know that I'll go. I think, yeah, for a lot of people, they have tricked themselves into believing as if they are productive. But I have met like what I would call actually productive programmers, and they are really in their own league. They don't really talk to a lot of other people as far as I can tell. <laughs> like the best programmer I ever met in my life was like this 60-year-old plus dude at Amazon. And he had been there like who knows how long. And he just like, he knew everything there was to know about everything computer related as far as I could tell. It was amazing. And I have no idea why he worked there. <laughs> like, it didn't make any sense to me. But he was there. Like, there's this notion that there's all this untapped gold of like extremely good programmers who are just more or less content at their job and just mm-hmm. like really being good at it all around the country. And I believe that. I think they're in the vast minority, but like, I think they exist. What should they be doing otherwise? Man, starting I don't, I starting don't businesses? I, okay, like, what you're asking me fundamentally is like more than just what should highly productive programmers do. You're asking me like, what should people do? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what is valuable in life is mm-hmm. essentially what that question boils well, down to. Why don't you to. just apply it to yourself since it would like, be impossible to, to apply that to yeah, everybody else? I mean, no, I don't think it's impossible. <laughs> like, I'll venture a guess, right? Like, I don't think people should start businesses for the sake of starting businesses. Uh, I think they should do it if they think that it would be satisfying for them to do it. But like, you don't live a long time. You got like 90 to 100 years tops, right? I like to think of it from the perspective of like, when I am dying, like I'll be on a hospital bed, I'll be like hooked up to an IV, like one or more of my major organs will probably be failing. And like, 
I know I have like a month or a week or a day and like I won't know which. Like I wonder what I'll think about. Mm-hmm. So that's how I approach it. Like I try to like look at, you know, whatever I can do in the short term, medium term, whatever, like what will be memorable like 60 years from now. That's a useful heuristic for me. I don't always follow it because I'm lazy also, mm-hmm. but like if there's like a guiding light for me, it is like my eventual mortality. The long term, like thinking about what you're going to care about 60 years from now. but Not care. I, I can't hope possibly to predict what I'll care about mm-hmm. 60 years from now. I just hope like that I'll remember. Like memorability is all I'm really <laughs> shooting for here. That's funny because it reminds me of uh, the first two years after I moved to San Francisco. I kind of, I started a startup and I basically just coded for like 16 hours a day every day for two years. It's wild. And the problem is that if you're just in flow for that long and you don't vary your like activities, you don't make new memories. Every yeah. day just blurs together. So I have like a two-year block of time in my life where there were zero memories. And I swore yeah. that I would never do that again. That's kind of what I suspected happened to that 60-year-old plus guy at Amazon. I think he just sat down to code one day and then he woke up and he was 60. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think flow is both really seductive and also kind of boring. Yeah, in its own way. I mean, it's a, it's a tool that you can use to a certain end, but it's I, not. I can't do it anymore. I can't, I can't program for eight hours anymore. Like I tried, I just I can't do it. You anymore. probably shouldn't, given your your role at your company. So let's get into the the genesis of CoderPad because okay. it started. I guess you eventually found your way to Everlane, yeah, uh, and you were conducting interviews. One of the people you interviewed, by the way, was my brother, who I just taught to code. I don't know if what? he, if he really? mentioned this to you. Yeah, the oldest. If I search for CoderPad. And my Gmail, the oldest email that comes up is my brother forwarding an email from someone at Everlane to some coder pad. Like, That's questions amazing. In 2013. What so, position was he interviewing for? I think front end engineer. Wow. But he was interviewing for his very first programming job. I mean, he, we missed Channing Allen. <laughs> he missed so, the one and only Channing Allen. My whole company is morally bankrupt. I mean, I think there's <laughs> probably no way I could justify continuing to work on this project. <laughs> well, that was 2013 that he. That he applied. What what year did you start CoderPad? I guess 2013. That was, yeah, that was that was. Yeah, right that then. was probably one of the first. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you do you have any other memories of this? I'd love to hear. Uh, I remember he didn't get the job. Mm. Uh, I told him that's that's fine. I mean, it was like I think his second programming interview ever, and he mm-hmm. just like learned. Uh, but I remember he liked you. He thought you were very fair. Okay. <laughs> you were his actual interviewer, so that's amazing. I wish I remembered this. I yeah. really have no recollection of that time period <laughs> in my life. Like even the story I told you for indie hackers is a mm-hmm. is a reconstruction based on emails and timelines that I that I know must have happened around that. Right. I have no direct memory of like sitting down to start CoderPad. <laughs> what What was like the birth of CoderPad like? Why did you start it? What kind of Headspace were okay. you in? Were you trying I, to get out of Everlane? Ima- no, I wasn't at all. I was. I imagined that I was merely frustrated with an existing set of tools to do interviews, namely Collab Edit. Mm-hmm. It's really annoying. I remember having vaguely this debate with my coworker about whether it'd be possible to run code in the browser or something. And I think he showed me Repl it, Repl.it by uh, that guy Amjad Massad. Great guy. They're more focused on education, but I was like, well, you could totally take this probably and kind of like slap it on like a collaborative text thing and then boom presto you would have something usable so i just did that i mean i didn't do it it wasn't an original creative work it was just slapping two totally disparate things together and just seeing if it would play and it did did you need permission from anybody at everlane to sort of incorporate this into the interview process or did you just go with it did it i mean there weren't a lot of us back then and i think we all kind of looked at it and was like oh it's a good idea like my boss at everlane was great Nanyu, who is now at Abstract, great manager in a lot of respects. And in one of those respects, he was 
very defensive of us. Like he he ran interference. Like he made us, he let us do a lot of things that it would be difficult in other environments to justify doing. Uh, was that the best thing for the company's bottom line? Hard to say, but it let me do things that I enjoyed doing that kept me happy, and I think that was important yeah. overall. And it eventually led to you leaving yeah. Everlane because the things that you were doing turned out to be pretty promising and you know at least moderately profitable early That's on. That's true, but I mean, honestly, if, if if I hadn't done Coderpad, I mean, I think there's significant odds that I'd have left Everlane around the same time. I think just knowing myself, for reasons I won't get into here, but yeah, it, just, <laughs> it seemed like I would do that sooner or later. Okay, so what were the early days and like challenges like of of turning this essentially side project into a business? And when did you even realize that it, it should be a business and not just something that you're building for fun or for your own use? Oh, I think I knew pretty quickly that it should be a business. I'm going to answer in reverse order. I think uh, you yeah. asked me like, how do I know that a side project should be a business or whatever? I don't know. It seemed obvious. Like that's not a satisfying answer, but like a lot of this stuff is like just so ex post facto rationalization of the past. And like the truth is, like I don't really know. Like I probably took a guess, and it seemed reasonable. And I was like, okay, I'll spend an extra few months building out like the payment flow and all this other random quota crap, so that other people can use this. Did you use Stripe? I did, in fact, use Stripe. Oh, I'd also cool. like to throw a shout out to Firebase, which really let me get going in the beginning. I neglected to mention them in the written interview, and they kind of chewed me out for that because <laughs> did they? Fire, yeah, absolutely. Because I love and, Firebase. and rightfully so, because the early prototypes of Cutterpad could not have succeeded nearly as quickly without Firebase. Yeah, and we still use them today. I mean, it's like instant, real time. Yeah, database, it was sort so. of built for the application that we were doing, so it made perfect sense. Nice. So you essentially just decided. On a whim that this had business potential, probably because you whim were using is the it. wrong word. I think it just seemed obvious that it had business it's just potential. Just obvious. And then, yeah. did you change besides like implementing Stripe, et cetera? Did you go out and say, "I need to make my first sale"? Well, I, I knew I need to make sales, but if you ask me like exactly how that happened, I have like difficulty remembering. <laughs> I remember my first sale was to a group of Udacity tutors. I remember driving down there. My then girlfriend worked at Udacity, and she was like, "Sure, I'll do this intro or whatever." We were in this room. We had Thai food. I presented like on a projector. We talked for a bit. I don't really remember any of the details. At the end, they kind of nodded and said, "Okay, we'll buy." But like buying for them was like nothing because it was like twenty dollars a month. And I was right. like, "Yes, I made my first sale." <laughs> like this is like is for no money. I mean, but it was it was fun. It was kind of when I got hooked. I think it's like I can just drive places and like convince people to do things and and they'll do it they don't really seem to care yeah yeah you don't need any sort of like rails or golden path that's illuminated it's kind of like the wild west where you, yeah, you don't really need permission make things happen and and that you can there's no magical process to it like convincing people to buy is just like convincing people of any other thing about the world and i don't know i had been used to that i've been used to like fighting or debating or convincing other people that my viewpoints were correct for a long time so i don't think that like sales seem too foreign to me like i'm not conflict averse so getting used to sales to me was not like the it wasn't the hardest transition i think I it's think, hard for a lot of developers like, you're i don't probably know an exception St steli has a great course on this i actually think while it might be hard for a lot of developers i think it's much easier than they think it is like that sales is most of the time about being friendly and persistent not about being mean. So like 1% of the time it's about being mean. And you don't even really have to do that 1% if you don't want to. So if you just like like making people happy, you can probably be good at sales. It's mostly just about remembering to send seven follow-up emails. Like that's the hard part. Yeah. So we kind of we kind of blew right past the whole process of you building Coderpad because I think 
a lot of people listening in and a lot of people starting their first companies never really get to the point where they've actually built something that they're even ready to sell because huh. they're too busy, uh, you know, work gets in the way, life gets in the way. How did you find the time to build CoderPad? Well, you had a full-time job. I don't know what to say. I mean, I work nights and weekends. Like, if you want to do it, you'll do it. There, I don't know. There's this webcomic that, like, really lays out. Uh, I think it's a quote from... Uh, it might be Faulkner. I can't remember. But, like, it's about how... People who always say they need more time and space to do their art are almost always making something up. Like the people who do art do it because they're like compelled to do it. Like that, like they'll they'll cram it in every crevice in the day. And that there's really like there's 16 plus hours in a day. And honestly, you can get through uh, like a day job in like five hours if you like actually wanted to. So like if you actually want to do something, like you'll do it. You don't need like encouragement to do it. And I generally don't know like what to say to people who say like, oh, I don't have enough motivation to do this thing I know I should do. It's like, like that's a core personality issue that like can't be addressed by advice or by like learning from other people's experiences. Like you have to want to do it. Yeah. Like, I just always assume that means you don't actually want to do that thing. So maybe you should well, find I, I something you want I think there's, a, there's a big difference between like wanting something and like wanting to want something. I think sometimes wanting to want something can be enough and it can be a path to like actually wanting something enough to do it because like I didn't always want to do it enough like only at the right time in the right place that I finally feel like I wanted to do something enough to actually do it like I had a bunch of like projects I've never finished I still do right like I work on all sorts of weird stuff that has nothing to do with programming or whatever like that uh just like often never sees the light of day because I lose the motivation at the end so like mm -hmm. I don't claim to have this problem solved I think I just got lucky I mean, like, I don't think there is a good answer to that. Like, if, if you don't feel as if you have the time to do something, you may or may not be correct, right? Like, and there's no way for us on the outside to know, nor anything that we can recommend that'll make that easier for you, you know? Have you, have you worked on any other projects that you intended to turn into businesses or, or like some sort of, you know, financially successful endeavors that didn't work out? Yeah, like one or two. Before CoderPad or after? One after and probably like one or so before. I can't remember exactly. The one after was like, a, I'll tell you about it if you're interested. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. I had this idea that like, so basically there's this company that has a monopoly on all city and municipal governments for hosting uh, archival footage of city hall meetings, which cities I think are basically required by law to distribute. So they're like obligated by law to engage such a contractor to mm -hmm. perform the service for them. And the existing provider, Granicus, is not really good uh, I, I've been using their website a lot because I'd like been trawling a lot of city hall footage. So like uh, one of the guys at a hackathon that I was at for like city politics stuff came up with the idea to um, basically like mirror all of their stuff. And then they provide a transcript to make that transcript searchable by timestamps so that you can sort of search in a given city hall meeting for like a key phrase or whatever and just like instantly jump to that point in the video. Mm -hmm. and I thought that's a great start. And I built that basically. And then I had the thought that like, why not just, build the whole thing and like compete directly with Granicus. Like it seems like a fun business and you basically have a monopoly once you land the deal. Mm -hmm. Like it seems like a pretty defensible moat. I gave up because I got bored. I don't know. Like yeah. I still think it's a good business. I just, I was distracted again by something else. And then I think essentially almost all business failure comes down to giving up in some way, you know, either because you're not enthused about the idea and it sucks uh, to work on it or because it's a bad idea. You run into business challenges was there ever a time on CoderPad where you felt like you wanted to give up? No. Never? No. But what about in the early days? Because I know for a lot of founders, those like first few months where you're not sure that this is something that's going to work out or be worthwhile can be pretty nerve-wracking. 
Uh, and I know you started off just with the Coder Pad as a side project, but you eventually decided to make it full-time. So were there any bumps in the road or challenges or insights that you had growing from $0 to, what was it, I think, $4,000 a month? Yeah, I quit it when I hit 4000 MRR. Um, what was that decision like? I picked the decision, okay, this is going to sound really stupid. And I had to explain this in the YC interview as well. They were like, why 4000 Like, you haven't quit yet? And I was like, I'm quitting at exactly 4000 MRR. And they're like, why? And I was like, okay, here's the reason. It's stupid. It's because when I hit $40 MRR, I posted on Facebook as a joke. It's like, haha, my business makes 40 bucks a month, guys. Isn't that funny? And then when I hit 400, I was like, haha, guess what? I made 10 times what I made the last time I posted. That's crazy <laughs> growth. And then I thought, oh shit, like if I do this again at 4,000, that's actually kind of real stakes money. So I might as well just quit then. Also, 4,000 kind of pays for rent and stuff. So like, that's yeah. why. Like, there's no, re there's no reason to it. I just did it because I felt like it. Could have quit at any number. I mean, if I quit in the beginning, it would have been fine too. Like, it didn't really matter. In San Francisco, $4,000 pays for like literally just rent <laughs> i had a roommate we were splitting like a one bedroom kind of you know that helps. i had the converted living room kind of situation you know yeah like one of those but uh one of those shitty old victorians in a basement was it a hard transition going from you know your developer salary to just four thousand dollars a month and no would you say that like you were motivated to what was pushing you the most just to increase your revenue or to... i don't i don't these motivational questions are hard for me. I don't think I'm like most people. <laughs> Why was I doing what I did? The truth is, I don't know. I don't actually believe that most people know why they do what they do. I was doing a thing because it seemed like the right thing to do. But okay, I'm gonna take a moment to explain. Like, I'm what you might call like an optimistic nihilist. Like, I don't think anything's really real up to and including money. It doesn't seem like money is like a is like a dead person's face painted on a green piece of paper. Like it. That it signifies material wealth to me is like almost amazing. Like that that system actually works to me is like terrifying and awesome at the same time. So like, yeah, I thought it'd be fun to make more money. But like I knew abstractly that if I failed at CoderPad, literally the worst possible thing that could happen to me is I would just get a job, right? Which I had proven that I'd been able to do at least a couple times before that. So like I wasn't worried about it. Like there was no anxiety for me. Like because to me, this is all big game. Yeah, it's like it's almost like a role playing game where you're you're essentially leveling up and acquiring skills and and okay. to what end I don't know. <laughs> I think it's more like an open world exploration game, like GTA oh, yeah. or whatever. You know, like just see how much you can get away with before everyone figures out that you have no <laughs> idea what the, what you're doing and you're just making everything up as you go along. So one of the reasons I asked you about your motivation was because one of the earlier things that I saw you in was actually a video where you gave a talk. At Dropbox. I saw that you did do opposition research on your interviewees before you bring them in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a cool video. I mean, I actually watched this video last year before I even started Indie Hackers, and I was trying to find out who I should have on Indie Hackers. And I don't remember the exact title of your talk. It was something about how to start a, a side business without quitting your day job. Yeah. I was, was trying it. to provoke the Dropbox audience. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Like, why, why give a talk like that? Was it to, it to, was go to and provoke the audience? <laughs> did you want to tell them that? You know, that essentially that they were doing their lives wrong. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> How do they take that? They like pretty it. supportive. They, I mean, they were happy. I mean, it was it was it was tongue in cheek. Like uh -huh. obviously, it was in this building, probably on this floor, <laughs> just a different room. It's striped now. Yeah. So uh, we could do the same thing if you want. I could. Okay. That would be fun. To <laughs> just come in back and, and do I mean, the same talk over again, <laughs> in the same room. Uh, why did I do that? I mean, I mean, the impression that I got watching it was that you actually. It seemed like it was. A core principle of yours that people should do this, or that it's better for the world if more people do that. 
I think it was more of the premise for the talk than necessarily like a, a core belief of my personality. I mean, I was invited to do a talk and they even paid me. It was crazy. Yeah. And uh, they like, I would, this was like the best topic I could come up with. So I like tried to make it compelling and like try to make, but I also gave reasons to like not start a business. I mm -hmm. actually think there are tons of reasons to not do it. Like many people I think are unsuited for it. And also it's not terribly pleasant in a lot of ways. So I don't know necessarily that like I actually recommend everybody who's listening to start a business. I know that's sort of the premise of indie hackers and also it's acquisition by Stripe is sort of, how do you put it? Like grow the GDP of the internet. Exactly. Right. So like readers at home, you know, if you can start a business, they would probably, you know, do that or whatever, but also maybe like, don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's not easy. Like it's, uh, it's a lot of work and there are a lot of things that are valuable in life that have nothing to do with money. And that is what I would, that's how I'd put that. I think one of the cooler things that you touched on, and that's, I've also found to be true is that a lot of people who actually would love to start a business don't just because they've never even considered it as an option. Yeah. Especially being like, you know, the smaller indie hacker type business where you're just making money and you're not trying to be a unicorn, especially if you're a developer, like that doesn't get advertised as much. Yeah. Do you think that's changing nowadays? I think it it must be changing. Like if there exist people like you whose sole job is to promote this lifestyle, I think I would take that as some indication that yeah, things are changing a bit. But on the other hand, I touched on this in the talk, like I think this is kind of cyclical. Like it used to be a cultural norm that everybody kind of wheeled and dealed. At least that's my impression. Mm -hmm. If you go in other countries, that's way more true too. So like that we are we, that we probably hit like peak corporatism and are trying to like dial that back a little bit, I think is is natural. Like it was probably inevitable in some respect that like people would get upset with like we've had cultural satire and lampooning of corporate life for like decades now. I remember like my entire <laughs> life, I would watch stuff like Office Space or like cartoons or yeah, just it, they, no one paints a favorable light of corporate life anymore. There is no work that makes the work of an office seem noble. And in some ways that's tragic because like, I don't think that's necessarily true, but on the other hand, like it reflects reality. I think the majority mm -hmm. of like office work in the world now is in some way deserving of satire yeah and nowadays if you don't like the corporate culture you can just do your own thing it's never been easier i mean you can build something especially if you're an engineer that reaches across cultural lines that reaches people who aren't in your immediate vicinity uh, and you can build something scalable like you've done with coderpad and i think people seeing that really inspires them thank you that's a very nice compliment and uh, for the listeners at home Cortland is a uh, is a really nice guy everyone seems to like him that i've talked to uh, <laughs> i don't know how he got so popular it's uh, it's kind of amazing yeah why don't why don't we talk about can we talk about you for a little bit yeah you can ask me anything you want i can ask you anything i, I want you can ask me anything you want doesn't but mean you can, i'm necessarily you're gonna going cut to cut it out of the okay so yeah uh how much did stripe buy you for i can't tell you okay i mean i'd love to share but it affects more people than just me uh at what number would you have like said yes to a buyout without pausing? <laughs> without pausing? Like if you got an email from, I think it was like Patrick, right? And it uh -huh. said acquire indie hackers. Mm -hmm. And the subject of the body was just a number. No explanation and whatsoever. I can't think about it. I've got to immediately and say yes. That what number would be so high that you would not think about it? You would just say yes at the time. I don't know. $3 million maybe? Like. Just to not okay. even ask a single question, though. It's, okay. I don't actually know that there's any number for which I would just say yes without asking at least some questions. I mean, you would have to 
figure out no, okay, there's what's the deal come here. on <laughs> like, <laughs> come on like who are you kidding if someone emailed you today and said i'll give you a billion dollars for coder pad you wouldn't have any questions i would say yes i would not hesitate i would say yeah i would assume they were lying but i would like i would i would hit yes as fast as possible right <laughs> i gotta lock that in it's a billion dollars what about come something on. i can actually share some non-hypothetical um, details about how do you like it here stripe's awesome i think I don't know if you know this about me. This is my first ever full-time job. I didn't ever have I didn't know that about a you. string of working at big companies to find out that I didn't like it. I just assumed since I was that a you kid, wouldn't like that it. I, would, that I wouldn't like Wait, it. For the readers at home, how how old are you, Corlin? I'm 30 years old. Wow. So you have somehow for the majority of your adult life managed to avoid working in large companies. Yeah. How did you do that? Uh, I heard I, you play poker. Are you just really good at poker? No, you know, I, I lose a lot at poker. It's actually contrary to my ability to survive without a real job. But I started a startup right out of MIT, and we won this business plan competition. We tied for first, so we got 25K, and I lived off of that in Boston for about a year. Sick. And then after that startup died, I used the remainder of that money to move to San Francisco, and my plan was really just to get into Y Combinator and get funding that way or to get a job if that failed. So it's kind of like you. you know, I knew I could fall okay. back to my programming skills, uh, and therefore it wasn't really that scary to take a leap. Yeah. Getting into YC worked out, and the money they funded our business with uh, lasted me for more than a few years. Were they incidentally funding a startup with that, or is that just <laughs> money for you to live your I life for five for, years? I just asked or? them for money. Okay. So no, they actually funded a startup that I was working on called Task Force, which didn't end up succeeding, but we did work very hard on it. How, how did you tell the YC people that Task Force would be worth a billion dollars? What was the pitch? Uh, it was one of Paul Graham's requests for startups. So he had this idea that email was sort of this Trojan horse into something bigger. And that if you could actually get in and change the way that people used email, then you would get hundreds of millions of users, and then from there you could do anything. So we were building this task management application that let you convert your tasks or your emails into tasks, check them off. Mm. It would notify whoever sent to you, oh, you know, Vincent has completed the email that you sent. Uh, so uh, just to clarify for the readers at home, you built a to-do list app. We built a to-do list app. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess the plan was to turn that into a billion-dollar company uh, somehow. God, did you? How did you feel doing? Did you believe that it would be worth a billion dollars, or did you convince yourself that you had to believe? You know what? Even back then, I think my role models were the guys at Thirty Seven Signals. So Jason Fried and David Heinemeier Hansen, and they were pretty much the only people talking about just making money with a simple, small online business. And it was always kind of crazy to me, especially when I moved to San Francisco the first, for the first time, that people would throw around numbers like a million dollars in annual revenue and say, oh, that's cute. You know, that's not actually a solid business. And so for me, like, I didn't feel any obligation because I was NYC to try to shoot for a billion dollar company. I thought it would be cool. But you had, you had to spin the story before you get in, right? Yeah, for sure. You have to, to pitch them on building a big but company. That just, you just saw that as some lie you had to tell and it had no real bearing. Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, I would have been happy with much, much less than a billion dollars, but we still tried very hard. I mean, for the first eight months of Task Force's life, we didn't charge a single dime for the product. And this is a productivity tool aimed at business users. Uh, we were giving it away for free. But it became apparent eventually, like, this is not going to work. Uh, and so eventually we ended up putting a price tag on it. We were one of Stripe's uh, early beta customers in 2011. Uh, and I think in our first weekend, we made something like $2,000 after we emailed everybody and said that we're now charging for task That's force. good. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but what's funny is we didn't really have a barometer for how good that was. I mean, nobody else in our batch was really doing that. There wasn't very much written online about just charging money. No one else was receiving money as payment for services rendered? I mean, as far as we could tell back then, nobody was building a big business off of the back of a Chrome extension. It felt kind of like a little rinky-dink application, and we were surprised that people were paying us money to begin Dude, with. Dude, do you have any idea how much like Boomerang makes? 
yeah, unfortunately I do. <laughs> it's a lot of money. I mean, we missed, oh we my missed God, that boat dude. for sure. I wish I had come up with that. Like, holy, f- I'm not going to swear. <laughs> it would be a lot of money to yeah. come up with like this incredibly simple Chrome extension, like in the right time and right place. Exactly. And the other thing is like in the present, the past always seems like it was incredibly simple and easy and that now things are hard. I would also buy Bitcoin for those at home. Yeah. If I was going back in time. All right. Anyway. Just throw a little asterisk in there. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin. Uh, but now we have like the, the, the presence of hindsight to see kind of where things have, go, have gone. Uh, there's a lot more written today about how to start a successful business. For example, your interview on Indie Hackers, where you just kind of broke down exactly what the process was like as best as you could remember from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Would have been a gold mine seven years ago to someone trying oh, to yeah. do that. And I, I want to make it clear that absolutely I have stood on the shoulders of giants as well. Like Patio Levin's writing for me was, um, it was a big inspiration, I think. Yeah. Like, I don't know about the actual businesses he started, but like he's writing on just like eloquently describing what the core or fundamental issues of small business are were like confirmations of like long held suspicions for me that like pushed me over the edge for like, okay, like if this random guy in Japan can like make it doing this random bullshit in Japan, I can probably <laughs> do it here in America. Like it, it's probably fine, you know, like that just normalizing these ideas uh, has done a lot. And I think you're definitely working on normalizing this idea and I think that work is highly valuable for society. I'm trying to, and I think that 10 years from now, there'll be far more people starting independent businesses. And I think people will, the path towards doing so will be a little bit more mapped out mm-hmm. as much as it can be. And there's like some argument to be made that like the better off that, or the more information there is out there, the more competition there is, and the more it's going to, you know, the harder it will be to succeed. But at the same time, good. I think. <laughs> I mean, lower the profit margin. I'm fine with that. Like, <laughs> It's crazy how much money the winners make in tech. I yeah. mean, it's it's kind of the core. Like, if, if the tech industry is different than all previous industries in any way, it's probably the profit margin. Mm-hmm. Like, there, it's fundamentally unlike any other industry that's come before. And until we get a handle on that, we kind of don't really know what's right. So, like, I would be totally comfortable with, like, more competition in the tech space. Like, I don't think we have enough. I don't think we have nearly enough. And I think consumers suffer for it. Yeah. What about in your own space? Like since you've started CoderPad and grown it to a $2 million business, have you seen a lot of competitors take note and start? There's, yeah, I mean, the legacy people started copying us. New incumbents started copying us. I don't know. I've met my competitors in real life, and they are like weak, spineless, soft people. And like, <laughs> I don't even think about them anymore. They're, they're so, they have no vision. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like one of them is a YC company, and... I was like, I don't know what they saw in these guys or whatever. Like it, I I used to worry about competition. I guess when I was starting out, when it felt like it was possible that I could just be squashed. But now I I, I have no I sleep very soundly. I worry about other stuff. Yeah. What do you worry about? Uh, politics mostly. You don't worry about anything with your business. No. One of the, the cool things that I think you talked about in your Dropbox talk was kind of the constraints that you have as a solo founder, right? If you're going to start a business by yourself and you have you know, these YC-founded companies that are trying to crush you or copy you, you need constraints so you can actually be effective. So, yeah. Well, I think uh, every company needs some kind of constraint. Yeah, for sure. They're more severe when you're solo. They're extremely severe. It's, it's funny, even working at Stripe, I'll look at you know, people whose entire job is something that I have to do for indie hackers, but it operates lives in such a small fraction of like the attention that I have to give it. And it's like, here, there's an entire team devoted to just that one thing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting looking at the constraints that you impose on yourself for CoderPad. For example, you never did any marketing. Yeah. You never did any, I guess you did a lot of sales. I don't know that mar- not doing marketing, I don't think of it as a constraint. It's just I never wanted to do it, so I didn't do it. No? 
Yeah, it's never a thing that we had to walk ourselves back from doing. It wasn't a temptation to do marketing. It was just like marketing is stupid. <laughs> so I didn't do it. Well, what were your biggest constraints? The, I mean, I talked in the Dropbox talk, I do actually mention like decision theory constraints for like how to choose what task to do next. I think the ones I mentioned were like either it has to like two out of three, like make me money, mm -hmm. uh, uh, make customers' lives better, and three, be easy to do. So like you could do a task as long as it was two out of those three. So you couldn't do anything hard that would make you money but wouldn't make people happy. Right, like it had to be like easy and make people money, or make me money, or easy and make people happy, or make people happy and make us money, and, and then it could be hard. Right? And another thing I think you said was that it needed to be like intuitively obvious that it was one of these things. So you weren't using Mixpanel, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it should be it should be obvious, right? If it's not obvious, like what are you doing? <laughs> like, <sighs> I think that's one of the, the hardest things, especially for uh, developers or people who haven't had like a customer facing role to connect the things that you're doing, the features that you're building with like the value that the customer gets and why they're actually buying what you're you're selling. And it's kind of what makes sales hard as well. Our writing marketing copy. How do you look, I don't like the idea of enshrining that this is a hard thing. Mm -hmm. Readers at home, it is not hard. It has never been hard. It will never be hard. All you have to do is do it. Like think about what the customer wants. If you don't know yourself, call them. Like this isn't that hard. It's how you find out any other piece of information in the world before the year like 1990 or whatever, right? Like we're spoiled now. We have Google. We have the notion that like people are just like ones and zeros or something like that's never been true, never will be true. Like you need to understand the people that your company services in order to service them. Uh, so yeah, I don't like encouraging that. Actually, it's not hard. I don't think it's hard either if you know those things. But I think it's it's a little bit unintuitive. Yeah, they haven't done it before. Yeah. But starting a small business is doing like a hundred things you've never done before. Like you have to be okay with that idea. Like if you only do the things you're used to, you will fail. Like guaranteed. I've seen it happen so many times. I talked about that in the other interview a little bit, right? Like the founders often get sucked into these productivity holes where they like, I don't know, like you said, coding like 16 hours a day or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like if a solo founder is only programming 16 hours a day, I can promise you they will fail. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. They have to do everything else too. Yeah. I think one of the cool things about you not having to do marketing and, and not even being tempted to do marketing is that really you guys were kind of growing by word of mouth from early on. Besides the sales that you actually did, people would go into interviews, use CoderPad, yeah. tell other people about it. And Patio11 had a tweet last week where he said, he kind of repeated this off-quoted startup advice that your idea is not what matters. In fact, your idea is valueless. It's a hundred percent execution. Oh, that's just not true. And yeah, I've seen a lot. Of dis I've seen a lot of disagreement about it. I, I wonder where you. It's obviously untrue. What you think about know. it? Like, okay, I'll give you a terrible idea. Let's see you make a successful business out of it. <laughs> you have to make I don't know uh, Fitbits for dogs. Oh wait, they did that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, it, it seems obvious to me that your both your idea and execution have to be good. Uh -huh. That seems like table stakes, right? Like, not only that, even if both of those things are true, you still might fail. So to me, it seems useless to talk about like this whole notion because like it, it's not even scratching the surface of like what you actually need to do. And to be fair to Patrick, I think he would probably agree with you and was directing his advice more towards newcomers who tend to believe that starting a business is one hundred percent about coming up with the idea. But on the flip side, I think if you look at especially VC-funded startups, there are just a lot of founders who take this concept to heart and who really believe that it doesn't matter how bad your idea is when you start. Uh, the entire goal of execution, or maybe even the definition of execution, is to iterate and to pivot and to eventually arrive at a good idea. 
Okay, I mean, I've seen that happen like a couple times. I mean, good products have come out of terrible companies like Docker, but like, you know, for every one time that happens, like you don't see the ninety nine dead people. You know, <laughs> yeah. like good luck. I mean, I, I I would suggest starting with a good idea if you can. If you don't have a good idea and you're a solo founder, I would highly suggest not doing it. Like, or thinking harder, or like. Finding low-cost ways to iterate on the idea that don't involve you spinning up a whole company first, right? There's a lot of like risk-reward trade-offs to make here. Yeah, I think ultimately, like almost every company has some sort of clock on it, whether it's the founder running out of time or patience or money, and like to the extent that you can start with a good idea that's like somewhere close to the mark, uh, you're just significantly raising your chances of, of success. How much has CoderPad changed since you first? built it. I know one of the early emails I also have from 2013 is you sending out an email to everybody at CoderPad saying, we just hit 1,000 users. Here's what I'm working on. And then at the bottom, you have like a whole paragraph basically asking people to tell you, you know, what should I build? Uh, yeah. How, you know, what, come, what came out of those efforts and how much has CoderPad changed? There's a lot of stuff to... Pro- okay, so like in the literal sense, like how much CoderPad has changed? Uh, I mean, we've like redesigned the site a couple of times, I would say. But like not in ways that are shocking, more like streamlining and refocusing attention of the user on like what we think the important parts of the interview experience are. But like fundamentally, the 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 philosophical value prop is exactly the same as it's always been. It's been refined a little bit, but CoderPad as an idea has not changed at all. Almost right, like the original form of the idea is more or less the one that exists today, because it was the correct idea. I think like. I got lucky with that. I mean, I, I could imagine another world where it's not true very easily. I, I, I don't think I'm a genius or anything. I just lucked into the right problem at the right time and had the right set of skills to execute on it. And like, I wasn't the only one with this idea trying to execute it on the same time, right? Like, there are other people with similar backgrounds who try to do CoderPad that mm-hmm. I never even knew about that I found out were dead later, you know, or still kind of limping along. Like, I just happened to be the one that won. Like, the reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because. By definition, I am lucky. And the people who are not... So this is the problem with advice in general, right? Like, I think all indie hackers interviews should come with a disclaimer just because I think it'd be funny. But like, by definition, when you ask successful people for advice, what they do is they like enshrine... It's a hagiography. They just like blow up these little details of their life and, and give them such explanatory power. Like I could sit here and tell you why like optimistic nihilism is the correct philosophy to have for someone who wants to start a business. But I don't really believe that. Like I have no idea. Right, like by definition, the people you talk to are the lucky ones. What they should really say is the way to be successful is to be lucky. Like that accounts for like <laughs> just make sure you get lucky. Yeah, that's like ninety percent of the variance right there. The other ten percent, like you have some control over, like but not a lot. So I would say the real advice is to like not worry about it so hard. Like the odds are you will fail. That's like okay, you know, like mm-hmm. you have to be okay with that before you can do it. Like if you're if you absolutely cannot let yourself fail, then you shouldn't be doing one of these. I don't think. What do you think uh, in your path from like starting the company to two million in annual revenue? What do you think is the the most lucky thing that happened to you and that that accounted for your success? We were lucky to win the confidence of certain large customers. It's not clear exactly why that happened. I just happened to know someone at the right place or got an intro or something like that. It's maybe surprising you, but I actually don't have many friends in tech, mm-hmm. so it was actually I didn't I didn't really have an easy time getting intros to tech companies. So like of the few that I did, like they tended to pan out pretty okay, uh, and I, that went well for me. Uh, I remember one time like uh, Bob Lee, like he was like a VP at Square or something like that, 
like gave a talk at like the VC that put up most of the money for Square when they like recruit all the founders to come have a conference or whatever. And he like had some panel on hiring and he just like told the whole crowd, he's like, hey, you should buy Coderpad. It's this weird product made by some guy named Vincent Wu. And uh, like, I remember he, I, the only reason I heard about it because my boss at Everlane at the time like texted me that like, hey, I heard you're doing pretty good, buddy. <laughs> like I was still employed there. <laughs> I was like, I had no idea this even happened, you know? Like, uh, so that was that was lucky. Like some of that stuff kind of serendipitously happened in the background and it was useful for getting going. But honestly, I'd probably think, I'd think it would work even without that stuff, honestly. Yeah. It's just been slower. What about the opposite? What do you think is the, the most beneficial part uh, or the most advantageous thing that happened that was just like sheer effort or skill or that was very deliberate? I am a very good programmer, so that's a huge advantage. I don't know, like if you're making <laughs> a product that is mostly code, being a really good programmer almost by default is a big advantage. Like another founder doing this job with like you know more more average programming skills, I think mm. would be they would take longer or they would make more mistakes. I think so. I, I'm lucky in that respect too. You know, I think. Last July, I, I emailed you before I started Indie Hackers, and I had watched your video on Dropbox, and I said, Vincent, I like CoderPad. I think it's been pretty incredible what you've done. I think you also like shared some Hacker News comments about uh, just how, you're, how you've grown. And you didn't come on Indie Hackers because you said that the cost, uh, the downside to sharing the behind-the-scenes details was yeah. not worth the upside. What's, not at that time, though, I don't think. What's changed? My perception of how vulnerable the company is. Yeah? Right. Like, at the time, I probably was worried more about attracting attention of the wrong sort but now like I, I was just anticipating a bunch of a bunch of like difficulties that i don't think actually now will manifest like for instance like if our customers know our revenue numbers will that change like discussions we have with them like at the time i might have been a little paranoid about that but now i don't think that's nearly as likely as an outcome and i don't know it just it seems like so much more of the business has gelled since then that I feel like the company's in a pretty good place and that it can totally tolerate like sharing some of its internal workings with the outside world. Not I mean, not because I think sharing is the right thing or anything. It just I, I felt like bragging after like <laughs> I'm gonna be totally honest, it's mostly vanity. Like after like four years to be able to like brag about it a little bit feels nice. Cause I've actually been really secretive about it. And like I I've definitely <laughs> It's nice to, to talk to people about it. I've what definitely you've done. brought people over who have expressed incredulity at the idea that I am a wealthy business owner given the way my then apartment looked like with my roommate and uh -huh. the, the, you know, the living room and with the bed in <laughs> and the whole thing. They kind of look at me like a crazy person. Um, so it's nice to get a little bit away from that. I have to admit, it's, it's for me. It's for me. Yeah, I think that's honestly what makes indie hackers work. Like if people didn't feel, if it didn't feel satisfying to kind of talk about what you've done and what you've accomplished, then I would never be able to get people like you to come on this show. Right. I think you should get people who have fucked up in a huge way. Like, yeah. if you can somehow entice us. Look, it's because you're only getting the success viewpoint, mm -hmm. which I think, look, I don't think doing a business is as much about doing everything right as it is not about committing like a few like huge errors that like everybody commits. Right. Like, do you think of the game of tennis as being about like making the best plays or not making mistakes? Mm -hmm. At the highest levels, it's about making the right play. At every level below the highest level, it's about not committing unforced errors. Like, uh, there's like this YC saying, I crib a bunch of notes off YC, we owe them a lot, mm -hmm. that like more startups die by suicide than by murder, right? And that's absolutely true. I've seen so many people fail for completely avoidable, stupid reasons that 
everybody but them saw coming. You know, like happens over and over again. <laughs> so like listening to the successful people, they say things like, oh yeah, I knew what I was doing. Like we had this plan and we did it and then we were successful, which I think lulls people into this sense of like, okay, if I just feel as if I have a plan and do things, like I'll be successful or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the truth is they did the right thing. The difference between the right thing and the wrong thing is really hard to illustrate by only interviewing the people who did the right thing. Right. Like I think interviewing people who fucked up in this like incredibly huge way, I think is is totally valuable. I think a lot of the reason why people do the wrong things or, you know, avoid doing the right things is simply because it's not because they know that those things are there to be messed up on or excelled at and they just do the wrong thing, but it's because sometimes they don't even know. For example, like you said earlier, uh, we kind of live in a society where customers have been reduced to bits and just numbers and words on a screen, where in reality, it's like you should be talking to your customers. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for a lot of people to, or a lot of people fail to talk to customers, not because they've decided they don't want to or that it's not important, but because it doesn't even strike them as something they should be doing. I don't know, man. I think it's more than that. We've been like shouting that idea for the last 10 years. I mean, like YC has been around a while. It's definitely changed the game. Like if you haven't heard the notion that like starting a startup, you should probably talk to your customers. Like every VC would probably tell you that. Anyone you would go to advice would probably tell you something like that. Like if that lesson hasn't sunk in, there's something deeper there, right? It's not <laughs> not just that you don't know, but that you're the kind of person that really doesn't want to do that for some reason or other. Like why? I think that's a lot of people definitely, but I think the emotional motivation's there. I think it's on the advice side, to be honest, because you would be shocked at the number of people who hear the good advice over and over and over again and don't follow it. I, I, I totally agree. I think advice is often useless. That you can tell people exactly what they're doing wrong and make it a really stark, obvious picture and they can still ignore you. Like that Paul Graham quote about how their business in YC is, you know, giving founders advice they know they'll ignore, right? Like this is endemic to human nature. Like people don't like advice, fundamentally you have to trick people into doing the right thing almost half the time yeah and like i mean that's a key learning for sales but also like what's going on there like what are we doing with this like is our goal to convince people to do the right thing like materially by like producing information like this how likely do we think it is that we will materially affect outcomes like i think that's a really serious question that like people who make a living off of advice giving need to ask themselves and i think there's very little serious examination of even the basic idea of like does advice work we've, we've we know so many famous people who've predicated their whole persona on advice giver you know and they're respected by the community but like have they actually ever changed an outcome who knows right it's, it's very hard to quantify yeah it's difficult for sure i mean i think people act on advice to the extent that it's obvious that advice will be valuable for them that's why insider trading is a thing because people will act on information but it just needs to be clear how that information is going to help them and it's difficult to measure, too. I mean, at ND Hackers, like, this is something that I think about. How many people are starting companies because of ND Hackers interviews? How many people are making better business decisions because of something they'll hear in a podcast like this or something that they'll read in a text interview or somebody that they talk to on the forum? I haven't figured out the best way to measure it yet, but there's... I, w- I would go even further. How many people did anything based on <laughs> something they read in an interview? This is a real problem. Yeah. Like, Steli FT, like had that YC sales workshop that I snuck into, and he's like, at the end of it, it's like, okay, so you should make a list of discovery questions you should ask. And uh, if any of you does it, you can send it to me and I will vet them. But I know none of you will do that. Like, he knows. It's not like, going to happen. People don't do things. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really, really true. People only do things that they wanted to do already. Like, and it's very, very hard to change what people want to do. That's the challenge. I mean, the goal, I think, as a founder, I think one of your primary virtues should be like flexibility. You should 
you know abstractly that your job involves doing 100 different things, so you should be prepared to do 100 different things. If you're not mm. doing 100 different things, maybe you're doing the wrong thing, right? Like, it's not just any one thing. It's like you have to do everything. And, like, you know that well from having done Indie Hackers as a side business or, like, a full-time gig, actually. And uh, just the management of this entire pipeline of stuff must be exhausting. But, like, you have to do all of the It's things. all on your shoulders. Yeah. I think uh, another thing about advice is that as humans, we're just we're a little bit obsessed with novelty, and so you'll see the same advice given over and over again. Talk yeah. to your customers, make something that people want, et cetera. And people will see that and say, yeah, 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 I've already I heard already that. Know, I already know that. Yeah. I already know that. Even yeah. though they're not doing it at all and yeah. completely skipping it just because they want to hear. There's just something about hearing something new and exciting that makes you, you feel like you've been enlightened. We call that the TED Talk effect. That's a good name for it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone needs to listen to a TED Talk. Everyone wants to give a TED Talk. Meanwhile, the best advice is obvious and repeated ad nauseum. TED Talks are the worst. TEDx <laughs> Talks are even worse. Like, it's crazy that that's still a thing. Well, even though we're sort of railing against the effectiveness of advice, I think, uh, why don't we end the episode on some advice? Uh, <laughs> 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 well, I want to go back to this idea of starting starting a, a, a business while you're working a full-time job, uh-huh. because that's the situation that most people are in. What kinds of advice would you give to someone who's trying to make that work? Have a good boss. <laughs> that helps. I don't know, like... Well, for example, I think one thing that I've heard you talk about in the past is how you believe that it's better to start a business that sells to other businesses rather than starting a business that sells to consumers, which is very hard to get off the ground. Yeah, I think B2B is easier. That's Do you a piece have a of checklist advice. of things that like, if you started your next company, oh you, would, you would follow? Um, so again, the problem with advice like this is I'm, I'm highly biased to predicate advice based on just what I have done. So I would say, I, would, I think it's obvious that you should do a B2B sales <laughs> thing. And it's clearly easier this way. But like, do I really know that? I mean, like I give it like 60% odds. Like, this interview is it's a chapter in a book and people listening are going to hear. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I guess I'm, I'm trying to disclaim myself against future embarrassment by saying like, <laughs> really, 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 I don't know everything. But the advice I would give is like, it's not about even execution advice. I think it's about your personality as a founder more than anything like again like founders commit suicide way more than they're murdered so like don't commit suicide like don't do weird stuff do like the right thing think really really hard about what the next right thing to do is like it's going to be different for every company so most advice is too general to be useful here but like i think the one piece of useful general advice is like if you're not really thinking hard about what the next thing to do is maybe you're doing something wrong you know, like, are you what what assumptions do you have remaining that have not been questioned sufficiently, right? Like, are you sure your business will work? Like, why are you sure? Like, can you convince other people that this is like going to work, right? Like, if everyone around you is skeptical, like, why are they skeptical, right? Like, seek to validate your own judgment. Don't just assume everything will work out for you because most of the time it doesn't, right? Like, try to set up some checks on your own reasoning and emotions because people generally speaking don't make decisions log- logically we just do them by feeling all the time right so like if you know that's true about yourself because it's true of everybody like the only thing you can do is like try to set up some guard for yourself like i didn't do that i just got lucky right but i know that's the right thing to do we try to do that more now right like startups are emotional yeah incredibly emotional yeah it's rough like that's the problem with them like it's that they are so emotional right Yeah, well, you heard it here from Vincent Wu. Think hard about what you're doing. Think critically about what you're doing and don't just trust your gut feeling all by itself. Yeah, don't be like me. Exactly. If you want to end up like Vincent, then don't do what he did. 
Vincent, can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you personally and about the things you're doing at CoderPad? Uh, you can go to my website, vincentwu.com. That's W-O-O. And I don't know, I have a bunch of links to other places from there. You can find my Twitter or just a bunch of random writing that I've done, uh, stuff like that. And uh, look forward to seeing you online, friends. <laughs> All right, Vincent, thanks so much for coming on. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and they really help other people to discover the show, so thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an internet business, or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com forum. It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's ndhackers.com forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.